Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Dune Part 2 hits theaters in just nine days on March 1st. Let's talk about everything we know about the sequel without spoiling anything. What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And we cannot wait for Dune Part 2 to finally hit theaters. We've been waiting a very long time for the release of this sequel to Dune. We're excited for what Denis Villeneuve and company have in store for us, being huge Dune fans ourselves. And again, we're going to go through everything we know about Dune Part 2. We're not going to spoil anything. Both read the book. We know what happens, yes. so we're not going to spoil the story. Mm-hmm. We're mostly going to talk about the trailers, everything that's been released, the press tour. It's the hottest press tour ever in the history of cinema. It is hot. Yeah. But there are some things that we have theories about that we will warn you that might be a spoiler if it's true. But they're just theories. Yeah. But you're safe to listen to this episode. Absolutely. We're not so gonna... safe. You're in a safe space right now. <laughs> we're on Arrakis in a Fremen tent, and we're going to have a good time. Now, is this the... I have to say, this is probably the hottest press tour I've ever seen for a film because not only do you have a bunch of extremely attractive people (laughs) (laughs) but their fashion has been top tier incredible looks incredible outfits and they're just destroying the cameras on those red carpets and i like the sand carpet they did over in the in europe it was really fantastic but everybody's crushing their looks i would say zendaya is just absolutely blowing everybody away with every look she comes up with, and she's destroying and smoldering the red carpet. But everybody <laughs> is looking fine. Everybody is, and also the red carpets themselves. We've been to a few, and obviously everyone's seen photos of red carpets. Sometimes they're very creative in terms of the design of what the carpet's going to look like, the floor, whether it be sand like in yeah. Europe or, or actual red carpet or orange like in Oppenheimer. And I think that this tour and this press tour, especially their carpets, have been astounding. Just the production design of the carpets themselves, that giant sun that they're all standing in front of. It looks terrific. I've never really seen anything like that at a carpet. So they are putting a ton of resources, Warner Brothers specifically, into this press tour, not just with the the looks and the style and the wardrobe, but also just the design of everything. looks stellar, like top tier. I've never seen anything quite like it before. And Denise casting of this, sequel has been just phenomenal i was so curious who they would cast for a bunch of these roles and it's amazing to get incredible actors like leia say do and we get austin butler attached to this florence Pugh, the huge dynamic actors christopher walken, christopher walken. anya taylor joy with the secret casting just yeah the red carpet everyone's like wait what anya taylor joy's in this movie yeah we're gonna talk about our theory about her character later on in this episode but i think it could be very exciting there's also A couple of other secret actors that I think might be showing up in this film. I'm not going to mention it here, but I think think that we're all in store for a couple of surprises when we watch Doom Part 2. Well, you saw a spoiler on Twitter, right? Was it for a casting? I won't say what it is, but I saw... Excuse me. It wasn't a a casting, but it was an actor who was in the film that I had no idea would be in the film. There's a pretty damn important character. Not massively important, but in the book. A smaller role. A husband yeah. of a character in this that's already been released as a casting. I'm guessing it could be that character, but it didn't say specifically who it was. There are a couple characters that haven't been released in the cast list or in the trailers or anything, but they are pretty important to 
aspects of the Dune story, so we're going to see them. But I think that I have a theory about who that character is. I'll tell you after. But what I saw was not a casting, but it was just this huge actors in this movie. And I was like, why would you put that in your tweets? Yeah. Unbelievable. So it's someone who got an early screening? Yeah, or... it was a couple of people who watched it the other day. Wow. And they're like, Dune Part 2 is an amazing masterpiece. Also, blah, 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 steals the show in their That's surprise absurd. scenes. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Unbelievable. But That's pretty insane. I do think that we're in store for multiple surprises for castings that Denis is keeping close to his chest. And I think he's borrowing from some filmmakers have done that in the past to great success most recently obviously chris nolan hiding matt damon from interstellar but it's happened a few times before with amazing castings that show up with famous actors so i think that this will keep audiences excited excited and surprised as they're watching the film yeah there's a male character who has not been released in the cast list and there's no actor attached to it that you can find publicly anywhere that has to do with Fyralth's storyline as well as the climax of the film. They yeah. are involved in the climax of the movie and the story going forward. So I'm so curious who that character will be. But also, what I like about Dune Part 2, not only just the trailers which will break down, but I like how there's a tagline with this one. Long live the fighters. Obviously, Paul Muad'Dib Atreides screams this in one of the trailers. He says, long live the fighters in the Fremen tongue, in the Fremen language, and it's sort of become a tagline for the movie. You see that on the press tour, you see it on the posters, you see it at the red carpets. I really like how this movie has a tagline where the first one didn't really have one. The marketing overall is exponentially better than Dune's marketing because Dune only released a handful of posters, and they often went with like a bluish tone in many of the posters. There are a couple of good ones in the desert with the, with, uh, the sand and a warmth to it, but... I think that the marketing team really excelled this time and captured what I can see is the essence of Dune Part 2. And there's definitely a stark difference between the look of Dune 2 and Dune 1. Dune 2 is extremely vibrant with deep reds and orange tones, highlighting in many of the scenes natural sunlight from both dawn and dusk. So you're seeing sunsets and sunrises lighting many of the scenes in the trailer. So I'm guessing that that's going to be a major theme for the story of the idea of an era, an old era ending, the sun setting, and then a new era beginning, dawn, the, the rising of a new sun. And so I think the need, from what I could tell with, with Patrice Vermette and Greg Fraser, did not designed Dune Part 2 to really take, take uh, the sun into effect in terms of its beautiful lighting of warmth and radiance at those particular times of sunset and sunrise. And you can see that in the posters. They're all extremely warm red orange tones and they're absolutely stunning there is a there is a floating heads poster now i want to clear something up about floating heads posters that many people don't understand clear it up anthony floating heads posters are not designed specifically to be like that the people who make posters are extremely talented artists and they do amazing work and they have to do floating head posters and this the reason why floating heads posters exist is because it's legal reasons so when an actor signs on to a film, their agent negotiates the deal. Salary, what's the scheduling, um, also can they get their name bumped up in the credits. Whether and they get TiVo or not. Whether they get TiVo or not, <laughs> if you're McConaughey, the TiVo. But another major aspect to negotiating an actor into a film is the agent tries to get their face on the poster. Now if you have a film where there's a huge lead actor and pretty unknown actors, generally that big famous lead is going to be the poster. Sometimes you'll have a couple, you know, three people. But when you have a big ensemble of A-listers, like a movie like Dune, all of the actors have quite a bit of power in Hollywood, and their agents have quite a bit of power. And so the agents are negotiating with the studio 
You can have Javier Bardem in this movie, but he has to be on the poster. Rebecca Ferguson wants to do this film, but on on top of the salary, she needs to be her face needs to be seen. So you have agents negotiating for nearly a dozen huge high profile actors. They have to be on the poster. This part of the contract. So then the studio is like, okay, we have to make the main poster with all of their faces on it. That's why Floating Heads posters exist. It's the reason why I know we make fun of them, but it's a necessary part of the legal constraints in the marketing part of a film. And it's marketing as well. You want as many people who aren't cinephiles to see, oh, my God, I love that actor. I love that actress. They're in this movie. I'm going to check it out. And also, they all got TiVo, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for clearing up the floating head posters, and they will continue to be roasted on the Twitter no matter what. But it's not – they don't just do it for fun. But I do like how they've made some other posters for this time, not to mention IMAX – in Dolby, they always make their own dope-ass posters. The IMAX ones for this one are specifically excellent. Like yeah, usual. they have the three sandworms crashing behind this the army on the on the floor. Yeah. Did you see someone said it looks like a giant chihuahua attacking soldiers <laughs> with the two eyes and the nose? <laughs> it's pretty funny. And the Dolby poster is fantastic as well. I also really love they did individual character posters with each character with that yeah. deep red tone, and it looks fantastic. And, and we're very fortunate because we're going to see this movie tonight. Yeah, yeah tonight. tonight. We're seeing this movie tonight. And also, we're hosting a, a private screening, which we already have announced the winners for, uh, which will be on the 26th in Los Angeles. So we can't wait to do that. So we're just ecstatic about this movie. We, we're so grateful to partner with Warner Brothers and IMAX on it. And also, a quick synopsis of Dune Part 2. What's it about, man? It will explore the mythic journey of Paul Atreides as he unites with Chani and the Fremen while on a warpath of revenge against the conspirators who destroyed his family. Facing a choice between the love of his life and the fate of the unknown universe, he endeavors to prevent a terrible future. Only he can foresee box office projection for Dune Part 2 currently is at $65 million. Is that domestic opening weekend? Domestic, yes. Which is surpassing the pre-ticket sales of Oppenheimer's domestic. So what do you predict for the overall gross of this film? Overall? Yeah. Well, opening weekend... I'm Let's do opening weekend. $100 million international, breaking 100, no problem. So domestically, it's projected to be 65. I think it'll actually do better than that. Yeah. I think it'll be probably 80 million domestic opening weekend. Internationally opening weekend, I think it's going to come close to 200 mil, maybe a buck 80. And overall gross globally, I think that Dune Part 2, if it has great word of mouth, is looking at $800 million. That's what I would say, eight, like 700 to $800 million at the global box I think office. it'll be a, a really big hit. I think it'll run in theaters for a while, like Oppenheimer did. I think mm-hmm. it's just going to be that kind of an epic that people are going to go back to see in theaters. Plus, the word of mouth is already hot for this movie. Everyone's, ta- everyone's talking about it. There's not much else to see. Yeah, it's a good point. That, not until the mid-March, yeah. the end of March. That's mm-hmm. when other movies are starting to come out. So it's actually a, a good spot to move it to advance it two weeks forward because it originally obviously supposed to come out, what, November 3rd and yeah. then push to March 16th and then push back to March 1st. And fortunately, we got some early invites. So even though we'll be in Scotland, we will have already seen the movie twice, and an episode will be out for us on March 4th on Monday for the official episode of Raise Lost Podcast on Dune Part 2, baby. On top of the marketing, I think that the trailers for the film have been very strong, and my favorite is the trailer number three, the most recent trailer that was released a few weeks ago. Is that the one that opens with Chani and, and in Paul inside in the, the tent? tent? Yeah, and it's just really fantastic. We hear one of the main themes that Hans did in that song. It's it's the track he did called a, T- a Time of Quiet Between the Storms that was basically placed throughout the entire course of that trailer. But it's really stunning. It shows a, co- a contrast of both the epic scale 
and then the the nuanced relationships of Dune Part Two, where it's going to be intimate and personal, but then also huge and epic. And they captured that really well. And I love that they still have hardly teased much at all. And really, we've only gotten a few hints at the multiple villains in the film. So they're doing an excellent job of teasing this film without making it feel like you've seen the entire movie from start to finish like many other marketing uh, departments like to do. Where it feels like, oh, I just saw from beginning to end that whole film. With Doom Part 2's marketing, they are doing a wonderful job of teasing things. And knowing the story, they are really just... They're kind of just like throwing things around to make the audience assume it's going a certain way, but really well done, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. This film was also shot entirely in IMAX format. The first one was not, but this one was a combination of 65mm film as well as digital with IMAX cameras, whether they're using film IMAX or digital IMAX cameras. And there will be 70mm projection screenings for this movie for you can count on the probably the first two weeks of its release in yeah. the beginning of March. And any all the digital footage was then processed onto 70mm IMAX film. So it's going to look absolutely astonishing. And I saw a clip two weeks ago at a tenant screening. I saw one of the scenes from the film on IMAX and it was the aspect ratio didn't change at all that entire sequence was filmed with the IMAX film format and you could see the beautiful grain the great coloring and it just took up the entire square frame of the IMAX screen and oh my god it was unbelievable so expect the whole film if you can see it in IMAX to look like that you gotta see gotta, it in IMAX come on to. and some of y'all will be seeing it with us in oh, yeah. at the oh same theater God, ever. It's going to be awesome. Let's talk about where Dune Part 1 left off before we get more into the trailers and the story and the characters that are coming back and the new characters that we've seen in the trailers. So, obviously, the end of Dune had Paul just defeated Jamis, Jamis in one-to-one hand-to-hand combat. Well, not hand-to-hand. One-on-one combat in the knife fight with Chris Knives. Defeats Jamis easily. He and Lady Jessica were accepted as Fremen into the small part of the tribe that had discovered and caught them in this little cavern in the desert. Baron Harkonnen has seized control of Arakeen with the help of the Emperor's personal army, the Sardaukar. And Baron also believes Paul to be dead, as well as Lady Jessica. Duke Leto has been assassinated by the Baron after Dr. Yue betrayed the Atreides in order to hopefully see his wife again. Gurney Halleck. Last time we saw Gurney, played by Josh Brolin, he had run into battle with his own little force against the Harkonnens during their raid on Arakeen. And that was the last time we saw Josh Brolin in the movie. It was like halfway through through Dune Part 1. And I thought it was really interesting and a smart move to show him in the trailers, to be like, Gurney Halleck's back, Josh Brolin's back. I think He has a, a major movie. role. He still he's, has he's a lot be to huge do. huge in this movie. But that's the last time we saw him, but now we obviously know he survived. And then Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa, died while protecting and buying time for Paul and Lady Jessica to escape. Poor Duncan. So basically that's kind of where we left off basically ending with Paul and Jessica walking with Fremen after being accepted, heading towards their siege, which is basically the home, the underground cities of the Fremen. Yeah, and I know that the most common complaints about Dune is that it was not as action-heavy as people were hoping it would be from the trailers and expectations, and that it, some people felt that it was too much of a setup. If you feel that way about Dune... I promise you that Dune Part 2 will be the opposite of that, and it is just going to be nonstop, not just action, but incredible story beats and incredible twists and turns, and it is going to be a really great paced movie where you are, if anyone who's bored during during Dune, 
I guarantee you won't be bored during Dune Part 2. What's astounding is the first film looked sensational. It was really well made. But this one, they dialed it to like a thousand on it with obviously Denis Villeneuve, Patrice Vermette, and Greg Fraser, this visual storytelling team, the three of them. Patrice is a great production designer. Then obviously Greg, Greg Fraser, they're very hot and in-demand cinematographer so right now. He's killing it. This guy's on fire. The three of them and what they come up with visuals are just incredible at the first film, but the trailers for the second film, there are some things that I feel like I've never seen anything quite like it before in my entire life, almost every shot that they've shown. And I love, they do an amazing job of blending together the long lens depth of intimate close-ups with the huge wide-angle lens of massive set pieces or huge crowds of people. And there are a couple of images I saw in this film where I was just, just from a, a half a second, I was just like, oh my God, I can't wait to see that. With the crowds yeah. of people? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whether we're inside one of the sieges or outside. Yeah. And yeah. there's a shot of like a huge crowd of tens of thousands of people like overhead. You just see their heads and they're all just like bunched together. And it looks like it's Paul is moving through them and they're separating as he moves through. But I could be mistaken, but it just like shots like that just look astounding. But then the intimate close-ups with the beautiful long lenses with low light sensitivity that have a very shallow depth of field and you get this out of focus background even uh, some of the actors faces will be out of focus and it's perfect for paul because of his visions and in this tra in the trailers we're seeing that paul is having visions and he's not really sure what to make of them they're fragments they don't make any sense they're out of order he's seeing images of battles he's seeing images of other characters uh, he's probably going to be seeing images of Fide Rotha, although out of place, and he doesn't know what to do. One of Paul's problems within himself is that he can see so many different futures and so many different outcomes. It's difficult for him to understand how can we make it successful, our our journey. And so I'm going to be really looking forward to seeing how he is making sense of what he's seeing inside of his mind. They dabbled with that in the first film. Yeah. I, I think it was smart not to overconfuse the audience with visions because mm -hmm. in the book he has a lot more fragmented visions and dreams of the possible futures. And in this film, I expect to see things in the past, things in the present, things in the future that he's just trying to navigate through. And his dialogue in the trailers talks about how he sees so many futures and in almost all of them, they they lose to their enemies. Mm -hmm. Their enemies defeat them. But there's a narrow path, a small narrow path that has success for them, but obviously everything kind of has to go right. But even when things for, are going around that path, things can also change. Also, Dune came. Dune was written before <laughs> Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> just, just heads up. What do you mean? Before Doctor Strange seeing all the outcomes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> this came first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Paul, that's one of his great gifts, one of his great powers, which also the Reverend Mother played by Charlotte Rampling, who's coming back in this film, who's also the Emperor's Truthsayer. There's a, in one of the trailers, she says, this is the, we, this world has never known power like this. It's mm -hmm. the ultimate power. And she's talking about this, this power that Paul is developing and growing as he's on Arrakis. And it's important to note that, as, as is depicted in the first film, the Bene Gesserit were planning to create this messiah, and Lady Jessica did it without their permission. So, well, they weren't trying to create a Messiah. Yeah. They were trying to create a being, a the powerful being, being yeah. no, to I mean, guide yeah. them through the future. Yeah, yeah. Whereas they leave and and trickle in theor uh, uh, religious 
ideas mm-hmm. and uh, prophecies of Messiahs. That's obviously they talk about that in Dune Part One. Yeah. Dune Part Two, the trailer. That's to control the people. Yeah, the tra- trailer, and also yeah. to set a, a way forward for when their people are there, yeah. for when one of their potential successors to be- potentially be the 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 powerful being that they're trying to create. But Lisa yeah. Al-Daib for the Fremen. Yeah. Kwisax Tadarach is what Kwisax Tadarach is what the Bene Gesserit call this powerful being. They're laying groundwork of this being of this person for when they show up there, whether it's a century later or a thousand years later. The groundwork for the prophecy is already there, but that's alluded to so much in the trailers, specifically with Fremen, specifically with Chani, who says this in the in one of the trailers. This prophecy is how they control us and how they enslave us, and I really like how this is a little bit different than the books. How Chani's going to have a much more vocal role in terms of the future of the Fremen. She's a very important part of the books as well. But she always sort of just follows Paul's lead in the books. But it seems like she's going to have more of an active role in her beliefs in terms of what she wants for her people. I think that goes in hand in hand with Denis Villeneuve's desire, which he stated multiple times, to showcase that maybe Paul Atreides isn't the heroic figure that we thought he was, especially in the first film. And... It's a very complex storyline and a very complicated character that we're going to learn more about. And I'm so excited to see how that unravels leading into hopefully Doom Messiah, which will be the third film, which will be really interesting to see. Now, part of the film, the first film, which was so astounding and which received its Oscar win was obviously Hans Zimmer's miracle of a score. And... I love that score. It works so well with the film. And he created so many incredible new sounds and designs and soundscapes and and using crazy instruments. And what Hans Zimmer does is he constantly reinvents the wheel of music composition, musical composition for film. And with movies like this where he's given free reign to experiment, he creates the sounds that you've never heard before. And people like us who have been listening to film composition f- for many years, most of our lives now... Even something like Dune, it's just like I had never heard anything like that before. And so you've seen, you've heard some of his music in the trailers, and I can confirm that uh, he's re- the two tracks he's released are absolutely phenomenal. So he's released two tracks on Spotify: "A Time of Quiet Between the Storms" and then "Harvester Attack." These two themes, these two songs are absolutely stunning, and he's built upon what he started with Dune, and he's it's different. It's, there's similarities for sure. But he's also embraced new aspects. And I've always thought of Hans Zimmer as the king of percussion when it comes to film scoring. And once again, with Dune, with, the, with that amazing percussion, like those, I can't remember what kind of drums he used, but I never heard drumming like that before. And then he expanded on it in this film. And I'm telling you, he found new ways of using percussion that he that are even better than he did with Dune. And you'll hear it in the Harvester Attack track if you want to listen to it. It's absolutely stunning and breathtaking. Like, I was driving on the freeway, and I had that on, and I was screaming, Let's go! Oh, my God! <laughs> I haven't listened to any of the tracks that he released. So after Dune came out, he continued working on the film, making music for Dune Part 2 without even, like, being told that it was greenlit. And Hans Zimmer actually composed 90 minutes of music before the film's sequel was announced. And he gave it to Denis Villeneuve to use as inspiration when he was writing and dreaming up the sequel. Wow. And so, and then obviously since then he's been working on it still. So he's put a lot of his time into this. And I love the collaborative process between the Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer of him giving him music to help 
him with his creative process, which is so inspiring and so incredible. But I'll tell you right now, uh, the tracks he's released are absolutely phenomenal, and I can't wait to listen to the rest of the album and to hear it in the film. I like how earlier you talked about how Paul may not be the hero that people think he's going to be from part one. Now, obviously, if you've read the book, you know what we're talking about with part two. But they allude to this in the trailer. He's speaking with Gurney Halleck, and he says, all my visions lead to horror. And Gurney says something like, is it because you lose power? And Paul says, no, it's because I gain control. It's because I get the power, and we lead everything leads to horror. And I think this is a great little nugget of what will happen and can happen if Paul Atreides gets power, even though he's the protagonist of the story. Even just because he gets power doesn't mean it's a good thing for the universe. And Denis Villeneuve, uh, he responded to this multiple times, especially after Dune's release of, in prior to its release, of people criticizing him for making a white savior movie. And he's like, guys, it's not a white savior movie. He's like, just wait until the story finishes and you'll understand what what I'm talking about. So he's been saying that for many years. And All you gotta do is read the book, yeah. and you'll know what the ending is, or even just Google it. <laughs> I love it. how people judge something they have no idea about. That's been around for 70 years. Yeah, for real. <laughs> now, also part of this amazing crew, like we've talked about Greg Frazier so many times, and Patrice Vermette, the DP and the production designer. Denis Villeneuve and Warner Brothers hired two really talented writers. So Eric Roth jumped on to help write this screenplay. He is one of Hollywood's great screenwriters living today. He's been nominated six times for original screenplay. He's never won, though, right? adapted. Never won. But he's got six nominations, which is absurd. Six writing nominations. Other films he's written are Forrest Gump, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Munich from Spielberg, Michael Mann's Insider, Killers of the Flower Moon, and a bunch of other great, incredible films. So the guy is one of the best screenwriters of the modern day he did he worked on part one as well yeah he worked on part one john spates also is writing the screenplay with uh, eric roth and denis villeneuve he previously worked on dune as well he broke out in hollywood for writing passengers which was the chris pratt jennifer lawrence space film if you remember that actually ended up on the blacklist in 2007 and sat there for years until it was finally produced and he also wrote uh, prometheus for Ridley Scott and Doctor Strange for Marvel. So he has had great success in the science fiction genre, and so it makes sense to have him on board. He also helped co-write Dune. Dune, baby. And what's really interesting is uh, Game of Thrones language creator David Peterson was hired by Denis Villeneuve and, and, Stuart, and the Warner Brothers to develop the languages that the actors would speak in these various tongues all the way back in 2019. So he's been working on creating much of what's spoken in foreign languages in both films. Especially for the Fremen, I expect to see a lot of Fremen language being spoken, and Paul even speaks it and mm -hmm. understands it in the trailers. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the imagery from the trailers. So I mixed up some of my favorite things that I saw in all three of the main trailers, and one of them has, is Paul has become a leader among the Fremen. This is when he stands up on that cliffside amongst an entire army and shouts that I'm Paul Atreides, I'm Paul Muadib Atreides, I'm Duke of Arrakis, and then long live the fighters in the Fremen tongue. Now, Paul, Paul Muadib Atreides will be his name going forward, and obviously it's told in the trailer. He says it out loud, so it's not a spoiler. But you'll find out how he got that name, Muadib, obviously in part two. And what it means, yeah. And exactly what it means and where the name comes from. It's very actually, it's actually very cute. Um, <laughs> Paul walking in front of a sandworm. This is great silhouettes. Yeah. 
uh, that they got. It's very desaturated, dark shot. Paul's vastly in the distance of the silhouette shot. He's blurred out by the heat of the desert. And he's just walking towards camera, maybe like 100 yards away, maybe further. And behind him, there's just a giant sandworm crashing around behind him. He's just walking like a badass. That's Such my favorite shot of the trailer. Incredible shot. We have Baron Harkonnen is in front of a massive army. Because obviously this is going to be an epic war film. Clearly, there are multiple battles, multiple huge battles in the trailer. There's a great scene and shot where Paul sends a massive projectile leading towards an enormous explosion. And then we get this great shot. One of the trailers opens up with Paul watching that explosion on a cliffside silhouette behind him. And the camera just shakes and reverberates. And wind comes crashing towards him. It's incredible. Incredible. I wish I could tell you all what that Oppenheimer is. Oppenheimer reference. <laughs> and, all right. <laughs> We have Gurney Halleck versus Beast Raban is going to happen in this movie that happens in two trailers where Gurney is covered in blood and he's at war in a battle. There's fire everywhere and he comes up to see Beast Raban and Beast Raban goes to him, well, look who's alive. So <laughs> I think we're going to get a showdown between Gurney Halleck and Beast Raban as well as we got many shots of Paul's blue eyes, meaning that he's had so much spice in his diets, so much melange that he has now adapted to the feminine have he has now has the blue eyes uh the uh, eyes of a bee a bod a bob eyes of a bod which are the blue eyes of the feminine have he's been chewing up that spice man num, 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 you know what's interesting there's three trailers no one mention of the spice really yeah no matter how important yeah. it's going to be because it, it is massively important like usual there's an incredible shot of paul getting ready to ride a worm and even stillgar is giving him advice don't do Keep nothing fancy nothing fancy nothing fancy okay and then he just jumps and just lands on a sandworm, hooks onto it, throws his hooks, and rides a sandworm and directs it. It's incredible. We have three sandworms heading for an army in one of the shots, which is sensational imagery. That's one of the posters. That's the IMAX poster. Wait until you see what that scene is about. We have multiple scenes and sequences of Paul and Chani and their love kissing. They're in that tent together. But also Chani fighting alongside Paul in battle, which is going to be great to see because many times in the book they reference how... The children and women of the Fremen fight just as fiercely as the men. So all people of Fremen, they're all equal and they all fight together, which is really sensational. Yeah, and they, they use guerrilla warfare tactics and they have always just been attacking harvesting machines and previously it was constantly ornithopters, yeah, ornithopters and harkening gear as well as spice mining gear as well. So they're, they've constantly been using those kinds of tactics for decades. I love the one in the shot where Paul's trying to explain an ocean to Chani, and he's like mm -hmm. basically like, oh, the water's so deep you can dive in. She's like, dive in? Yeah, it's called swimming. I don't believe you. It's very <laughs> cute. <laughs> then we have a great shot in a couple seconds of, well, Princess Erlon's all over these trailers, by the way, played by Florence Pugh. Now, there's a great shot of her making a historical record into a recorder. I An MP3 player. MP3 <laughs> player. I'm calling this is going to be a very early shot, but um, it's actually important to the character. You'll find out why. As well as Erlon sort of is asking questions about Paul Atreides. She's the one that asks in a trailer, what if Paul Atreides were still alive? Then she also goes to, obviously she's a princess, meaning that she's the daughter of the emperor, played by Christopher Walken. She asks him that. Then another trailer, she says to the Emperor, Paul Trades is alive. So she discovers that as well. I think Erlon's going to have a huge role in this movie, more than the book probably, even though Erlon's all over the books in a different way than you would think. And we have Paul calling the Maker with a thumper, where the, th the Maker is uh, a, sandworm. a sandworm. 
Paul speaking the Fremen language, and it seems that not all are welcoming him into their sieges or into their communities because one of the Fremen says to him, you are not welcome here. And Charlie tells him that he's like, don't worry, I got that. So he's understanding the language very quickly. I can't wait to see the sieges. We've seen a few shots of them, and it's, those are those huge interior desert caverns where the Fremen live, and they're all over, littered across Arrakis, hidden unbeknownst to Harkonnens who think that the population of Fremen is very small, but there are millions of them living in sieges. Duncan Idaho talks about that in the first couple acts mm -hmm. of Dune Part 1, talking about how many, that's when they find out there are upwards of 5 million Fremen on the planet secretly hiding and living in these sieges. About 10,000 live in each one. Let's see. Gurney Halleck is all over the trailers as well. There's a great one where he's talking about, in addition to the All My Visions Lead to Horror scene, there's one where they reunite, which is great. Young pup! Young pup! And then also, Gurney says something to Paul. Paul says something about, I'm sure, I'm a prophet. They call me a prophet. I don't want to be their prophet. But Gurney's like, you should use that. What, that's not so bad being a prophet. You can use that to your strength and to your advantage. As well as, I've talked about how he screams on top, I am Paul Muadib Atreides, Duke of Arrakis. Great line coming up that is insanely relevant to the climax and plot of the film. He who can destroy a thing has the real control of it. Hell yeah. Emperor, we learn, is going to is send out assassins to try to take out Paul Atreides. And he says, deal with this prophet. Deal with this prophet. Send assassins. <laughs> your, father, a, your father was a weak man. There's all, I mean, a couple shots of Christopher Walken look great. Obviously, yeah. he's with uh, Princess Irulan a few times, but there's one where he's with Paul, and he tells Paul to his face, your father was a weak man. What's interesting is about the emperor is that in the books, he is old, but he also has the, the body and look and feel of a 30-year-old. Because of the spice. Yeah, because of the spice. So he's, he, I thought it was like interesting casting Christopher Walken because he looks in feels very old, but I think it's going to work. I think it works better for I the audience. I think it would be confusing for the audience. For the audience, it's better yeah. because it's the same thing, I think, with the Harry Potter movies, how the parents are so old, even yeah. though they'd be 19, 20 years old. When they died, it's sort of better for the audience to understand so they don't have to explain everything. If, and, I mean, if the emperor looked the same age as Florence Pugh, it would be confusing exactly. for people. Yeah. So I think it makes sense for visually storytelling with the movie. Next up with some other stuff. Oh, we can't forget about Fade Rautha. <laughs> Fade Rautha, Austin Butler, is all over these trailers. I love how we have sequences where he's in this battle arena, and this is where Denis and Greg Frazier and Patrice got really interesting with going black and white, but also clearly I'm sure they put white makeup all over the characters and all over the actress to make, to even accentuate it even more because it's it's beyond black and white. It's, it's beyond like mono, Yeah, it's beyond monochrome. It's really interesting. It almost looks like maybe they didn't even shoot it with black and white film or digital, but they just created the black and white aesthetic visually on set. I don't know, but it looks really cool. I believe they used black and white film stock, but I could be mistaken. I, don't, I, think, yeah. I think I remember Denise saying that in an interview last year, but I could be wrong. But they definitely did additional white makeup, it looks like. My guess... Because they are pale. Yeah, I make. I have a theory that that might be the opening scene. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. It could be. But Fyderalta looks awesome in this movie. He's called Psychotic. He sticks his tongue out like a maniac. He also slashes the throat of somebody who's just standing there helping him get ready for battle, too. So we clearly see that Fyderalta is a maniac. And we also have... One of the biggest images on the marketing campaign so far are Paul and Fyde in a standoff both with daggers ready to duel. And Fide is actually not much much different from Paul in regards to his birth line and how he was conceived. Not at all. Not at all. Not at Little all, tease. everybody. Little, Little tease. tease. And also, one of my favorite parts is 
Paul using the voice on the Reverend Mother. <laughs> Silence! Where she says, consider what you're about to do, Paul Atreides. Silence! And he has so much control over the voice and so much power now that he can silence the most powerful Benny Gesserit there is. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And then uh, we also saw a couple shots of a harvester attack, of Fremen attacking a Harkonnen harvester. And then something that I thought really cool, you mentioned earlier, is is Paul learning about the Fremen culture because Paul comes from a hierarchical society and a society where his family ruled. And he's learning that the Fremen live very differently. They live in equality. And Shawnee says in the trailer something along the lines of everything we do is to benefit the, the whole community. And there's really no hierarchy at all. We're all equal. And so that's something Paul is learning about coming from a culture where hierarchy is everything. Yeah. She says something like your bloodline, you come from dukes yeah. and kings and emperors, whereas we are all equal. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And he says, I, hope, I w want to be equal with you. Really He's so smitten. He is smitten. So smitten. So that's basically the trailer is what we've seen going on, and it looks awesome, man. It, it really great. does. And I'm I'm so excited to see Austin Butler's Fight Rautha, maybe my most anticipated part of the movies. I have something that I'm, yeah, I have something that I'm more excited to see. But we can get into the characters and some more stuff, and maybe even a couple of theories after our intermission. That's right. Let's head to our intermission, and before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at Patreon.com/slash. Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Why would you want to join Patreon? First of all, you get access to ad-free episodes of every sh episode of the show. So you can just go on Patreon and listen ad-free and link your Spotify, which is a really cool thing that they do now. You can also support us by leaving those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. I will be getting a tattoo of anything that Anthony decides. Yes, sir. At 5,000 Apple reviews. So let's bump those numbers up and I will get a ridiculous tattoo somewhere. I don't can't believe I said this. 30 it's times, happening. but I'm it's sticking happening. to these guns. You can also support us by sharing us with your family and friends. It's the best way for a podcast to grow. Word of mouth is essential. Share the load. For the success of a podcast. So share us with your family members and friends and everyone, anyone who's interested in doing part two and wants to learn more spoiler-free, of course. Share this episode. Of course, this episode, like always, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have amazing posters for both Dune films. So if you want to get your Dune action on, you got to go to MoviePosters.com for those posters. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. They do our bi-monthly movie poster giveaway contest. Congratulations to our last winner, which was from our 80 best movies from the 1980s episodes. We had a bunch of entrants. And they picked out an amazing poster that they get for free from MoviePosters.com. We're going to do another contest next week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, for all of your poster needs, be sure to go to MoviePosters.com and use the promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order right now. Let's get into the intermission, Anthony. Are you ready? I'm ready. For the movie quote competition? Give it we, to me. Here we go. Here we go. I'm just here for the gasoline. Hmm, say it again. I'm just here for the gasoline. Mad Max? Yeah. The gasoline. 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 The original. All right, here's my quote. No dream is ever just a dream. Seemed pretty relevant to, to Paul. No dream is ever just a dream. I don't know. Eyes wide shut. Nice. Talking about Nicole Kidman's dream. 
About the sailor. About the sailor. All right, guess this movie release year, Anthony. Tron. 1979. 1982. What year did Barry Lyndon come out? What year did that come out? Yeah, what year, man? 19. Oh, crap. Just watched it last year, too. This is not a 60s movie. It's a 2010s movie. This <laughs> is not a 70s movie. Yes, it is. This is 19. No, it isn't. Is it 80s? No. Yes. No. Is this what happens in your head? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. Stupid. No. Yes. <laughs> Say it. Say it. <laughs> Finish it. <laughs> Rob <Evil! laughs> Oh, man. Is it 70s or 80s? I'm going to go 70s. I'm going to go 19. Let's go, man. You got 72. 75. Oh. It was a 70s movie. Yeah, it was. Who directed Starship Troopers, Anthony? That would be Paul Vorhoeven. There you go, man. Awesome guy. This guy. Wicked, wicked awesome director. Great, wicked, great sci-fi, wicked great sci-fi awesome director. director. He also did a Total Recall. Fantastic director. All right. What was Stanley Kubrick's sole Oscar win for? And not his, like... Career Oscar, but like, what did he win? Not the honorary yeah, one. Yeah, not the honorary one. What did he win an Oscar for? It's the only Oscar he ever won. He won an Oscar, I believe, for writing. Right, because he never won a director. Incorrect. What did he win an Oscar for? That he won a producing Oscar for Best Picture for. Incorrect. He won. None of his movies have won Best Picture, unfortunately. He's never won Best Director. He's never been won Best Writing. Yeah, and so, and you're talking about, and he's never won producing. Producing, and it's not the honorary one he got. No. Stanley Kubrick's Oscar is for a documentary. No. Stanley Kubrick's Oscar for, Oscar is for, <laughs> what the fuck did he win an Oscar for? A short film. No. <laughs> It's a big movie. Stanley Kubrick's Oscar is for editing. No. <laughs> Give up. Stanley Kubrick's you... Oscar is for <laughs> acting. <laughs> yeah, best actor. <laughs> um, I'll just say, you're not going to get it. Sure. Best visual effects for 2001 Space Odyssey. He was the co-winner. That's pretty his, cool. Yeah. He did it. He did the fucking visual effects. What a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what he won an Oscar for. He didn't win best director somehow. Not I once. Fucking, I don't understand that at all. He's, he, he's only nominated three times, too. He was only nominated three times. I mean, Nolan's director. only been nominated twice. Yeah. Silly Crazy. stuff. Crazy. Silly stuff. Crazy stuff, man. Mm -hmm. All right. What are our haters of the week? Do we have any unsubscribes, Anthony? Well, we recorded yesterday, and I got through all of our unsubscribes, so we haven't gotten a new unsubscribe. You emptied the clip, man. You did like <laughs> 12. Actually, let me check uh, our episode right now. Maybe there's an unsubscribed up there. Let me, let me just double check. We posted uh, our movie news episode today. Let's well, I have a great five-star review that I can read out while you're looking yeah, let's for that. Yeah, So this is from Breck Fox. He wrote, Thank you for your service. I've been a lover of cinema since seeing Interstellar and IMAX almost 10 years ago at the age of 18, and I've listened to quite a few other film TV podcasts, but I can honestly think 
This one is by far the best. I came across James and Anthony kind of randomly. I watched Donnie Darko for the first time in December. Hell yeah, what a movie. And was blown away, but also a little lost. So the first thing I did the next morning was look for a Donnie Darko analysis explained episode on Good Apple one. Podcasts. Listen to a couple other podcasts for a little before turning them off because they clearly weren't for me. Then I came across the bright orange logo and saw the name Raiders of the Lost Podcast. <laughs> and with myself being a huge Indiana Jones fan, I hit play. Less than 10 minutes, I knew I found one of my new favorite podcasts. The guys do such... So much research for every episode they do, and you can really tell they enjoy talking about film, TV, and informing their listeners. Their chemistry is second to none, which it should mean be. I mean, they are twins, and I always find myself letting out a few laughs each episode. I wish I found this pod sooner, but I'm also kind of glad I didn't because I have about 70 episodes saved that I plan on binging through at work. I love hearing the reviews of my favorite films, and I've always found myself watching movies I otherwise wouldn't have ever heard of. Plus... I like taking part in the intermission quotes and quizzes myself. I need to stop yapping about James and Anthony. Y'all are the best. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Stay true to yourself, and I can't wait to see what's next. Six stars. <laughs> wow, thank you. Breck Fox, that might be the best review we've ever gotten. That's Holy a great crap. review. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to write. 70 episodes downloaded. That's awesome. Six stars. Ready to go. That's our first six-star review, everybody. Six out of five. Pretty good. <laughs> it's a pretty good rating. It's not bad. <laughs> You're the best, Breck. <laughs> oh, by the way, I gotta mention your awesome shirt that you're wearing. Thank this, you so much. This Dune shirt. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That looks like a, you know, like one of those tees from the '90s. You want to see the back? Yeah. Here, I'll show the back too. It's got the sandworms Dune. on it. Dune. How a, you do? It's a really cool custom. Well, not custom, but a. It's like one of those vintage thrift tee, like vintage thrift tees, but it's got Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides on it. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I got it at CultureKings.com. They're not a sponsor, but they have they make cool shirts. It's really it's really awesome. I got a Matrix one too, but I was gonna wear this to our screening. But they actually are gonna get us some Dune shirts. IMAX custom Dune IMAX shirts. Hell yes, <laughs> I love IMAX. So that's cool. But I figured I'd wear it during the episode. It's well, you can sick. wear it to the screening in a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, I'll tonight. Wear it, I'll yeah. wear it. Yeah, tonight. Yeah, to the screening. All right, Anthony. What is your streaming recommendation for this episode? Well, since I did a Stanley Kubrick intermission, I was like, well, I might as well do a Stanley Kubrick recommendation. One of his lesser-known films, The Killing which is an amazing film he made before many of his more famous films. It's about a heist at a racetrack and a cast of criminals who carry out this amazing uh, crime. And it's just really fantastic. So well done. Beautiful cinematography. or Just a razor-sharp, tight script. It's really brilliant. There's a reason why he went on to make some of the most memorable movies of all time. This is an early film that if you're interested in Stanley Kubrick movies you've seen the big ones, check out The Killing. All right, let's get back into our episode. No recommendation? Oh, I forgot. My recommendation is... People want to know. Not a sneeze. Doing on Max? <laughs> that last time. <laughs> Gravity on Netflix. Oh, nice. So I, I went to the Warner Brothers studio tour. No, the um, it was at... Yeah, the Warner Brothers studio tour. And they had a whole sound design space... Um, explaining the four main components of sound design from Foley art, dialogue, uh, uh, sound effects, and the musical composition of the scene. And so they played the clip of Sandra um, Bullock uh, go, uh, the, of the debris hitting the shuttle and her getting thrown into space. So they played that two-minute clip first with just the dialogue. All you heard was Clooney and, and, Hull, and Bullock, which was really great, nothing else. And then you heard just the Foley art, and then you watch the clip again with the sound design, 
and then you watch the clip again with just the musical score, and then they played it a fifth time with it all together. And you got they they had a whole mixing grid where you saw all the levels and components. And it was just so cool to see that. That's really cool, it was man. One of my favorite parts of the tour. Damn, I got to do that Warner Brothers tour you, soon, dude. You got it. It's amazing. They seem to have beefed it up since the one I did it Big last. Time. They put a lot of money into it, as they should. It's really cool. I mean, why not? Now let's officially get back into our episode in Dune Part Two. And let's talk about the characters, and I think most importantly, we should talk about Chani, played by Zendaya, who obviously is only in the first film for. Maybe a total of like five to ten minutes of screen time. She's in the the last act at the ending of the film, but also in some of the visions that Paul's having in the opening of the film. And she is in the opening scene. Narration, yeah. However, Chani's going to have a massive role in this movie. Don't worry, you Zendaya fans. Chani's going to be a main character, a main component, and a driving force for the Fremen against the Harkonnen in this film, as well as her relationship with Paul Atreides, which will be blossoming in this movie as well. But also, being Paul's girlfriend comes with a lot of baggage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's fighting for the throne of the Empire of the entire universe, so (laughs) there's baggage with that. Also, Gurney Halick is back. Josh Brolin, I loved him. I thought it was perfect casting as Gurney. Uh, The previous adaptation, Lynch's, it was Patrick Stewart, who was good good Gurney as well, but I think that Josh Brolin really embodies the, the ferocity... The strong, the strong nature, the warrior, uh, and the commander that Gurney is, and the poet, and the poet, because yes. Josh himself is a writer, and mm-hmm. him and Greg Fraser, the cinematographer, just released their a book called Dune. It's a photography and, and poetry book, which looks incredible. Yeah, I can't wait to see. They've released a couple of images, but I think Josh Brolin is just such a fantastic actor and guy, and he's just a cool dude. But I think. Him as Gurney is one of the best castings of all the cast. And all you Dune book fans, Gurney will play the Balisset in this movie. He He'll will. Be it's playing been confirmed it. by Denis Villeneuve. He'll be playing which it. Which is an instrument in the Dune universe that Gurney is known for playing and carrying around with him. He's a great musician. He's a great singer. He's also a poet in addition to being a great general and commander and fighter. I think Josh just kind of embodies all that, though, so well. He's also a wonderful cook. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> uh, Stilgar... Played by Javier Bardem. Same kind of amount of screen time as Chani in the last film. A few more scenes, obviously, with the Duke and with the uh, in, in Arakeen in the first act of the film, in the first one. But yeah, when Duncan introduces them, yeah. But Stilgar is a leader of the Fremen, and he will have a massive role in this movie as well as being kind of a, a partner in leading the Fremen with Paul, as well as being, you know, a follower eventually of Paul, I'm sure based off the trailers because he cl- he cl- like there's a big difference between Chani and Stilgar in these trailers where I said Chani is sort of making her own mind up about the prophecy and what she wants to follow whereas Stilgar clearly in the trailers seems to be more of a follower and believer of the prophecy. Next up Dave Bautista as Beast Robin will be having more screen time as well. He had his considerable amount of screen time. I can't wait to see eh, not really. I mean he was in the emperor scenes. He was in one Emperor scene. Yeah, he was in one Emperor, yeah. He, was really, he really actually had very limited screen time. He's in the opening, and he's, he gets up that. He's in that cool shot of standing yeah. over the army. Okay, yeah. But really, he just has that one scene with the Emperor, and as well as Piter is there, mm-hmm. played by, I, I can't remember his name, the actor who's in the Nolan movies and in Prisoners. Oh, uh, David Desmalchian. David Desmalchian, Piter the Mentat. So he's in that scene. He's dead, though. And then there's a <laughs> shot of him cutting people's heads off. Yeah. But really, that's all Beast Robin has in the first film. And there is a bit of a rivalry between him and Fide. 
He doesn't li- he doesn't like Fiden because Fiden is really like the golden child of of the Harkonnens and like he's he's someone who's been plucked and given the opportunity to try to seize power, whereas Robin is more of a tool that the Emperor uses it's as more his of a nephew. blunt object. Yeah, yeah. and so I, he he does have resentment towards Fiden for being like the chosen one in a way. It's sort of obvious too by the yeah. character designs as well, but I think it'll be great to see more of Dave Bautista in the Dune universe because. I was disappointed by his screen time in the first movie. That may be my one disappointment with the movie. Not that Beast is all over the book, but I think because Dave is such a great actor, he's such a strong presence on screen. But I'm excited to see more Beast Robin, for sure. And obviously, We're like going to see a lot of Harkin and stuff. Yeah, and like I said, there is going to be a fight, clearly from the trailers, between Gurney and Beast Robin. They'll talk more about the exposition and meaning of that in the movie, I'm sure, like they do in the book and how important that is to Gurney to, to have that moment. And I think it'll be really great. And it's going to be an epic battle. Oh, yeah. Let's get down to the big guy. All right. Fade Routha, played by Austin Butler, who looks terrific. He beat out every A-lister for this role. And what's really interesting, I think, obviously, we've been talking about the psych- psychotic nature of the character. Denis Villeneuve described Fade Routha Harkonnen as a cross between a psychopathic killer, an Olympic swordmaster, a snake, and Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger actually had actually been attached to play the character in Alejandro Jodorowsky's failed Dune Red adaptation in the 1970s, but I'm super excited to see this performance. And another rock star played him. Sting yeah. played him. Yeah, Sting yeah. played him in the in the David Lynch version from 1984. So I'm nice, ecstatic yeah. to see Austin Butler as Fade because really interesting character, and I'm sure they'll beef him up for the movie as well compared to the books. He's all over. He's in plenty in the books, but I think he'll be more of a a, a presence in the movie versus the novels because he's so interesting of a character and an opposing force to Paul. Yeah, and obviously the Emperor and Baron and Fide are all antagonists of this film, but Fide will be, in a way, Paul's main antagonist. And I can't wait to see uh, their battle. It's not a spoiler, it's on the fucking banners and posters, but he, <laughs> he and Paul are facing off with knives in every piece of marketing. And I'm telling you, that's my most anticipated part of the film is to finally see that showdown. Uh, and it's going to be really fantastic. And the cinematography and the lighting of that sequence, are, it just looks incredible. Like the the huge sets they built on these sound stages are already, they look astounding. And I can't wait for that. And also, I'm, I love the design of the black teeth. They've just teased a couple of times with him screaming. I can't wait to see that in color, what the black teeth look like. It's going to be really cool. And, in, F- and Fide Rotha is, in a lot of ways, everything that Paul isn't. Where Paul is humble and stoic and modest and unsure of himself many times and reserved. Fide is the opposite of all of that. He he loves being in power. He loves killing. He he gets great pleasure in battle and warfare. He likes to take. He likes to destroy. And he really loves being a villain. He has a very interesting and tasty relationship with his uncle, Baron yeah. Harkin, and it's I hope that I'm excited to see their scenes together because in the book they're really excellent. And, and I can't wait to see him sharing scenes with Leia Seydoux. Yeah. They've seen so, it in the couple of the trailers and one of the stills they released is they're in an image together. Leia Seydoux plays Lady Margot Fenring. Like I said, uh Lady Margot is involved with Fade in the story and it'll be interesting to see. But also there's a massively secret character that they haven't revealed the casting of. Again, I saw someone earlier played by a male, a male actor who will be in the circle with Fade Routha, Fenring, and uh, Margot Fenring, as well as Baron, sort of in that part of the movie. And it's a great role 
uh, Leia Sedu beat out Elizabeth Debicki, Ava Green, Ava, Amy Adams, Natalie Dormer, Olivia Taylor Dudley, and Gwyneth Paltrow, who were all considered for the role. But I think Leia Sedu is a really great casting. Super, super talented actor. One of my favorite actors. I concur. Lady Charlotte, I mean, <laughs> Charlotte Rampling, <laughs> is returning as Reverend Mother Mohayim. She is, you could argue, probably the most powerful Benny Jesuit in the universe at the time. She is the Emperor's truthsayer, which they'll explain more in the movies. But she's got a couple of lines in the trailers. One where, like I said earlier, she tells Paul Atreides to think about what he's about to do, and then he silences her with the voice. And there's, some, there's a really cool little fact about Chalamet and coming full circle is that Charlotte Rampling is one of his favorite actors and always has been, and he always looked up to her, especially her theater acting. And so it was a dream come true to actually share that Gom Jabbar scene with her, with her in the first film. Oh, I didn't know that. It's really sweet. Very cool. There's another shot of some fingers going inside of like a reddish lighted trap thing kind of thing. But you know, the like knee loves sticking ha hands in objects. It looks like a it looks like a was the dune bucket. It's like a door <laughs> doorknob. The dune bucket. The popcorn bucket. AMC. The dune popcorn bucket. There's no way they didn't know it was gonna go viral. I feel like when they designed that and they got the prototype, there's no way someone's like that looks like you could have sex with it. Well, maybe if it was designed by women and they wouldn't have that thought. Well, we don't know who it was yeah. designed by. But I know, look, that's what I'm saying. No, but the marketing team, yeah. they had to have known, and they probably <laughs> knew it was going to go viral. <laughs> like, these marketing teams are very smart. They know what they're doing. <laughs> what if we make a, a fleshlight a fleshlight bucket. popcorn bucket? It's <laughs> exactly what it looks like. Oh, my God, so funny. Or maybe they just were completely oblivious to what they were doing. I don't yeah, know. But there's, I feel like there's I think no it was way, an accident. I feel like there's no way they wouldn't know that. I think it was an accident. That's what it would look like. I think it was an accident. I don't know. All right, next up we have the Padishah Emperor, we've mentioned earlier, played by Christopher Walken. He's the emperor of the known universe. He's mentioned multiple times in the first film. He's the the dad of Florence Pugh's character, Princess Erlon. Papa. 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 <laughs> Padishah Emperor. And he is going to be very instrumental to the course of events carried out. He's the one who obviously made the deal with the Harkonnens to uh, take out the Atreides line and let them take over Arrakis and... That was a deal that the Emperor made with Baron Harkonnen because it worked out better for him. However, Paul is going to put a damper on those those plans. Yeah, the Sardauk are that intense army, the the very skilled warriors. Uh, those are the Emperor's... Per uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the Emperor's personal army, and he made that deal, like Anthony said, with, with the Baron to... It's a trap. It was obviously a trap. To take out the Atreides because the Atreides' voice rises is rising. The Emperor wanted to take out the Atreides in addition to the Baron and get control of the Spice at the same time. So, I cannot wait to see Christopher Walken. When this casting was announced, I was so on board. I thought it was a terrific casting because Walken is an all-time actor, man. Don't underestimate him. He is so talented. Even though he's done so many silly, fun roles and comedic performances, he's insanely talented. He's an Oscar winner. He's a massively talented actor. So Is he talented? I, yes, I say it a lot. <laughs> I'm excited to see him in such a vital role after not having seen him in a movie in quite a while. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, it has been a minute. It looks great been, still. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It really does. Yeah. But it, what a badass. What a cool casting. I thought it was great. And then Florence Pugh will be playing the Emperor's daughter, Princess Erlon. Uh, obviously, the daughter of the Emperor. Emma Roberts actually was offered the role of Princess Erlon, but had to decline it due to scheduling conflicts. Which prevented her from taking that role. She would have been a great choice. Yeah, as I well, think yeah. she was a good good choice as well. We're not going to spoil Erlon's storyline because it's actually really major, and it has to do 
it's it's very deeply seeped into uh, Doom Part Two storyline. So we don't want to spoil that. Well, they do reference it in the first film. What do they say? Paul is talking with Lady Jessica. Oh yeah, and, yeah, scheming and with yeah. Doctor Kynes, yeah. and she. He says the emperor has daughters that are unwed. Yeah, and okay, you're right. There, there's says, a tease of that. You make a play for the throne. You're yeah. just a kid, so yeah. they do hint at it. Yeah, so that, that is hinted at. We won't go too much into that because we want to save it for everyone. But uh, Florence Pugh is going to have a very important role in the film. Now I want to talk about Anya Taylor Joy. Yes, no idea she was in the movie until last week when she was at the red carpet. Looks stunning, by the way. Really terrific. The the, the female wardrobe is my god. For the, their, their wardrobe for the press yeah. tour is incredible. Stylist as well as Timmy, obviously, in yeah. Austin. And then Josh is just in a nice suit. <laughs> still, it was like everybody in these amazing outfits, and then Stella Skarsgård was just in a black suit. Like, Anyone over 30. Like, I'm not wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Anya Taylor-Joy, it's so interesting to see her because me and Anthony have been trying to talk, to debate, like, or figure out who she would be playing. At first, we were like, maybe a Bane Jesuit, maybe someone with the Emperor. Then I was thinking last night, I'm like, this is Anya Taylor-Joy. She's a massive star. She's about to get bigger than ever with the Furiosa movie coming out. She won't just do a small role. Exactly. So, me and Anthony have a theory that we kind of agree on. And it's it's, it's the secret thing that we've been talking about for months. So, we're going to give you all a spoiler warning right now. We're going to talk about the character and who we think Anya is playing with this character. So, we're giving you a spoiler warning right now. If you don't want this character spoiled because it has not been teased if you've never read the book, you don't want to know anything about this character who's a complete secret right now, just skip ahead like a minute or two. But here's your spoiler warning for Dune Part 2 secret character who we theorize Anya Taylor-Joy is playing in three seconds. So I'll give you three more seconds. Three, two, one. Spoiler warning. If you hear it, it's not our fault, okay? <laughs> it's not our fault. <laughs> so Lady Jessica's obviously pregnant in the second, in the first film. How did you know that? I didn't even, I, heard, I barely film, knew that. She gives birth to a daughter, Alia, who is Paul's sister. Obviously, Leto's daughter as well. Alia Trades. Now, Alia is born to Lady Jessica, who is the Bane Jesuit, becomes the Bane Jesuit of the Fremen. And because she becomes the Bane Jesuit mother of the Fremen, she takes the water of life, which gives her the power to live as all Bane Jesuits, have all the Reverend Mothers, all their experiences, all their lives are inside Lady Jessica. That's what the Reverend Mother is. She has all the lives lived of past Reverend Mothers. That's going to be a great scene. So I'm so curious how they do that. Because she was pregnant while that was happening, she gave birth to Aaliyah, who came into consciousness in the womb and also became a Reverend Mother in the womb as an unborn child. And then when she's born, she basically has the intelligence of a Reverend Mother and the experiences and past and memories of all Reverend Mothers. As a toddler. As a baby. As a baby, yeah. As a baby. And then in the books... She's mostly a young child, about four, five, six years old. I can't remember the exact number, but she is a is an adult basically, mentally. So me and Anthony were thinking Anya Taylor Joy is playing this character because you would probably want an older actress, an adult actress, to play that role, but maybe obviously age them down to an infant or a child having a body double or something like that, and using the great technology right now of putting Anya Taylor-Joy's face or de-aging her onto this baby. So it, David Lynch, the way he portrayed Alia is he cast a kid, a little kid, a girl, and then he had a, a woman voice her in post. And it didn't work. It just sounds off to have a little girl speaking and then it was like an older woman's voice. So I think that they're CGI de-aging Anya Taylor-Joy's face and putting it on a little girl's head. And this works if they make Dune... Three, Dune Messiah, where Aaliyah will be older 
and uh, almost an adult, and Anya could play her as herself. So yeah. that's our theory of who Anya Taylor-Joy is playing. If you skipped ahead, now is a safe time to continue the episode in case you didn't want to hear what we were talking about. Again, the spoiler is over. Even though it's not a spoiler, it's yeah. a theory. I'll make, I'll make a chapter marker so everybody knows when it starts yeah. and ends for the spoiler. So it's a character spoiler. And it's, but in, not... it's in the David Lynch movie. Yeah. She's in the David Lynch movie. So if you've seen yeah. the movie, the yeah. original, but that's who. But a lot of people haven't or yeah. and haven't read the book. So mm-hmm. that's who we're thinking Anya Taylor-Joy is playing in Dune Part 2. It would only, and I yeah. think we're right. Okay, spoiler is over. I just wanted to talk about... I found this great tidbit about Denis Villeneuve's direction for the story for the second film in terms of the writing process and what his vision was for the characters. So Denis Villeneuve stated that the film would continue directly from the first film and described it as being the second part, obviously. He calls it an epic war movie. And he, he found the first film to be... It's more contemplative, whereas the second film would be an action-heavy film. Now, the central story will revolve around the spice, obviously, which is a psychedelic material that grants its users supernatural abilities found exclusively on Arrakis, highlighting themes of environmentalism and exploitation. However, Villeneuve sought to anchor these abstract concepts to the characters, primarily through Paul and Shawnee. With the two featured in the epic love story, Villeneuve described them as the epicenter of the story. Zendaya initially found it difficult to create dialogue, commenting that it was funny trying to figure out this futuristic space talk, like how would Paul and Shawnee flirt? Chalamet also said that Paul would be heavily influenced by Shawnee, serving as his moral compass. Additionally, Paul becomes deeply embedded in the Fremen culture, developing a closer bond with Stilgar, which James alluded to earlier who becomes his surrogate father and mentor while challenge, while tensions emerge between Shawnee and Lady Jessica. As Shawnee is aware that Jessica's schemes negatively impact the Fremen, she has her own motives. When envisioning the Sandworm sequence, Villeneuve primarily relied on his own drawings and storyboards as he felt the book did not contain adequate descriptions, so he invented more action with the Sandworms for this film. He later cited it as being one of his, one of his favorite scenes in the entire film. Ooh, that's interesting, because yeah. the three-worm part, that's in the book, mm-hmm. but I'm curious to see what he's done. And also, Villeneuve said that the film's ending was more tragic than the book, feeling that it adequately ad- resolved Paul's storyline across the two Dune films while setting up his character arc for a potential third film based on the book Dune Messiah. He focused on Herbert's original intention to, to depict Paul as an antihero in Dune and wrote the film script that accounted for his future plans regarding Messiah, such as modifying Johnny's character from the book to make it more of a contrast from Paul. So that's another reason why Shawnee's character is beefed up in this in this film. I just I can't fucking wait for this. I think it's smart, and I, I think it's a good move because obviously we love accurate book-to-film adaptations, but also times change and audiences, the way they perceive characters change. And I think it makes Chani more of an exciting character to make her not an opposing force to Paul, but not just a follower of whatever Paul does and says. To get add more conflict. Exactly. Yeah. And and give her give her more of her own actions and her own choices because she's obviously loves Paul and they're in a relationship, but also she has a commitment to her people in the Fremen community. Did you know that Vilnov went to deserts in like Africa when he was like in his twenties and like pretended to be like envisioning dune i believe it like there's a shot there's a photo of him sitting on a sand dune when he was like in his 20s and it's like 
he was just imagining like one day maybe I can make Dune here. Yeah, that's why I think he's just yeah. feels like he's probably the luckiest filmmaker to ever exist or on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. Not only to be working with such an amazing group of actors and actresses and talented artists and production and crew, but also to it's a dream project for him. Yeah, I, I just I can't wait to see this. And obviously, if things went according to plan, we would have already seen this many times. It would actually be Dude, Messiah'd probably be in production. It'd, yeah, it'd be in Max by now. Obviously, it was delayed by the strikes. Uh, but the film was actually greenlit very quickly. So only four days after Dune's release, Warner Brothers was like, let's do number two because yeah. it, it opened uh, leading the box office. And it was post-COVID. Post-COVID, it was the box office leader for the weekend and was Warner Brothers' top oh, performer for opening weekends in 2021. So I expect Dune Part 2 to really blow people away. And a lot of that has to do with people watching Dune on Max who maybe didn't see it in theaters, really liking it. And also goes hand in hand with the beautiful trailers and beefing up the cast with even more big names and a couple of pro- actors whose profiles really rose between 2021 and now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even Timothy and Zendaya, Austin Butler, all the three of them, yeah. their actor stocks have just gone through the roof in the last three years. Even though they were all very high, there's three of the biggest stars on the planet, but even just in the last Austin three Butler years. Austin Butler wasn't in 2021. Austin, yeah, he no. was known. And I mean, he's coming off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood year in a Quentin Tarantino It was movie. Elvis. Yeah, but like it was Elvis, Elvis in 2022. He's a superstar now. Yeah. He really is. Or yeah, 2022 came out. Yeah. Because Once Upon a Time was 2019. Yeah. But not he wasn't really a household name, I would say. Not Elvis, until now. Elvis blew him up. That was the one. And all, I mean, every filmmaker who saw Elvis, they're like, I want to work with them. Yeah. And that's why he's been working with amazing director after amazing director after amazing director. Because everybody, I'm sure, was like so blown away by his performance as Elvis that he just became everybody's new favorite actor. Yeah. All right. Uh, two more two more actors I want to talk about. Stephen McKinley Henderson, who played through for Howitt in the first film, who is the Mentat of the Atreides, mm-hmm. is going to be back. It's public knowledge. He's not in the trailers, but he's back and will obviously if you've read the books, you know what his role is going to be. It's going to be a very interesting role for him in performance and what he gets mixed up in is really cool. As well as an actress who's pretty much an unknown in Hollywood. Her name is Sohila Yakub. She is going to be playing a Fremen. She's in a couple of the trailers, a couple shots. Her name is uh, Shakishla. And I read about the character. They've kind of blended a couple characters from the books into her and expect her to have a pretty decent role as one of the Fremen warrior and leaders of uh, Siege, I'm guessing. I saw a great Thufir meme uh, yesterday. So for anyone who didn't know, Thufir is the, the Mentat for the Atreides. He's the- And master of assassins yeah. as well. And so he's the guy with the umbrella in that film. And I saw it was like book version of Thufir is like a really intense, serious line. Yeah. And then film version, it's him holding an umbrella and smiling. <laughs> no, it's funny because it's an interesting casting the way that Denis appro- approached Thufir because he is a master of assassins. He's a, he's a super intelligent mentat killer. Human an computer. And, a, yeah. hu- and, a, and a, a great assassin. He's been working with the Atreides for generations. And Kinsley Henderson is such like a lovable looking teddy bear, but it works. I think it's really great. And I think that's why Denis cast him because he's just yeah. kind of, it's a serious movie, but let's have like a, 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 some brevity from another character. Yeah. I, I thought it was like, I got to send you the meme. It was fantastic. It was yeah. amazing. But he's going to have a great role in this one. All right. Speaking of roles, what's your prediction of who the best actor, what the best performance will be in the film? That's a good question. I think that the best performance is 
I can give you mine if you, if you want to think about it. It depends because I think it could go with Zendaya or Austin Butler. I think them two are just going to be primed for primed for great performances because I, I, Zendaya is going to have a lot to do in this movie. Yeah. And so is an Austin Butler. So I think it's going to be between them two. I actually think it was going to be the same actor who I thought gave the best performance in the first film. Okay. Rebecca Ferguson, who is supremely talented. And she really, in a lot of ways, carried Dune because Paul was such a – Paul's character, he's a, he was just a kid. He's naive. Yeah, he's, he's naive. Young. And so his mother was giving him strength and pushing them onwards and, and leading in a lot of ways. And because she goes through so much grief as well. And she, the, the build-up and setting up the Benny Gesserit meeting, like, she's amazing. Uh, but it's, don't know everything. It's barely scratched the surface of what her character is going to be going through in this film. Yeah, she's going to go through some intense stuff. And I can't wait. My prediction is Rebecca Ferguson will once again give the best performance of the Dune film. I'm so curious how Denis is going to do the crazy thing that we're, we're yeah. thinking of. I, I cannot wait to see how he portrays it. Well, I, I saw an interview quote from Rebecca Ferguson. I won't explain what the scene is, but she said it's kind of like exorcist vibes. All right, that's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. That's what she said. Man, it's gonna so be that epic. makes me excited. It's going to be epic. But I think that she's going to, once again, absolutely destroy the screen like she always does. Yeah. I think this is going to... I think it will get a Best Picture nomination. I think it's going to get an insane amount of awards nominations. I think that if the movie is as good as I hope it will be, it could be the first science fiction film to win Best Picture. Well, I mean, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a science fiction film. Oh, yeah, this is science yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess that's science fiction, yeah. Okay, could be the second science fiction film to win Best Picture. Was it the first one, the worst sci-fi film? I mean, the first sci-fi film to win Best Picture? I can't think of one that won Best Picture. Yeah, I'd have to go through yeah. the list. The list. It's usually not. Sci-fi usually just gets the technical awards. But, I mean, it's 2024 is actually quite a weak year compared to 2023 in terms of number of high-quality films. Especially because a lot got pushed back to 2025. Yeah. I think that Dune Part 2 has, uh, if it's as great as it looks, has a lot of potential to win a lot of serious awards at the Oscars. Yeah, because when you think of big sci-fi films that would have been coming out this year... Uh, I would say Mickey Seven would have been a contender for some of those awards, but it's been pushed to 2025. Jordan Peele's next film has been pushed to 2025, and that's probably going to be sci-fi to an extent, I'm sure, or horror. So, yeah, there is not a there's competition, but not not much at all, especially in terms of big blockbuster movies like Dune Part Two is really in a league of its own. We're getting Gladiator Two later this year and Mad Max. It's hard. I mean, Mad Max, if, we'll see if he can match what the brilliance of the original film. I mean, of the the first uh, Fury Road. Fury Road. Fury Road um, but man, I, I, I think that Dune Part 2 looks like it could be a front runner for Best Picture, honestly. Could be. Honestly. It could be because we did an episode on most anticipated films of 2024, right? Yeah. Let's see. Let's Joker Folly Ado. But we'll see. I mean, Dune Part 2 looks poised to be the best film of the year. It really does. We're getting a bunch of sequels. We're getting Challengers. Yeah, maybe, I mean, Hitman. Yeah, because Jordan Peele got pushed to 2025. Yeah. Mickey 17 got pushed to 2025. It looks like it's primed to be the front runner for Oscars. Yeah, wow. You're it really right. does. Kind of a... Even amongst like, even amongst more like Oscar Beatty movies, it's still like far and away like 
it looks like it could be the number one movie. It'll be between this and Twisters. Twisters! Which looks sick. <laughs> Maybe Alto Kings. We'll see what that looks like. We'll see, man. The Bike Riders comes out from Nick Jeff Nichols. High hopes for that. Uh, but, I mean, Dune Part 2 just looks like a really special movie. It really does. It does, yeah. And you're right. It's kind of the year that a science fiction win film could win Best Picture. You're right. Well, we'll find out. Well, you got anything else on Dune Part 2? That's all I got for now. We don't want to spoil anything, and I can't wait to watch it tonight. And I can't wait to host our private IMAX screening at IMAX headquarters with all of the winners who won our contest and giveaway tickets. Can't wait. Congratulations to everyone who won. We, we really can't wait to see you in your plus ones, and we hope we have a wonderful time with you. But thank you so much for listening, for listening to this episode of Dune Part 2, Everything We Know on Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast for awesome perks. If you want to listen to this episode or future episodes ad-free, get access to our Discord, all kinds of awesome perks. Don't forget to leave those five-star ratings and reviews. I'm getting a tattoo of 5,000 Apple ratings as well as share us with your family and friends. It's the best way for a podcast to grow. Word of mouth is integral to our show. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Darian, Tyler McFly, Mark Nikaj. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.